Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Good morning, everyone, and uh, great to see you on the screen, at least, and to be with you as we worship. I'm feeling a little rusty as we've been out of pocket for a while and on break, and just want to say thank you so much for praying for us this summer while we were away. I hope and trust that you've also gotten a good vacation and some downtime or about to have one. We did a lot of fun things this summer. We went white water rafting. I pushed one of my kids in, tried to scare them to death. We tubed down another river. We played. Um, we had lots of fun. But the best thing I got to experience this summer was some time to just enjoy the presence of God, to be quiet, to experience his love his peace, just sitting and knowing that I am his and he is mine, that he is ever present to us as we seek him. It helped me to become terribly inefficient this summer, but incredibly joyful. And the passage today is going to help us understand that we all need this presence of God, his salvation and his presence in our midst So let's open our Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 14. We'll need Matthew chapter 14, and I just need a section out of John chapter 6 to help explain. These are parallel gospel accounts of the story. But I want to say something that I think is the most important thing for us to understand in this life. The church exists because of a singular, powerful, universal and hospitable invitation from and by the person of Jesus Christ for us to be reconciled to to God, for us to know him and to love him, to be his people. In fact, I would say, and this will probably cause some controversy by saying this, that Jesus primarily did not come to rectify our social our economic, our political realities of the day. He didn't do it then. He did not primarily come to do it to us today, but rather to place us into a family relationship with him at the center of eternity, a relationship where for this eternity future, we will get to love him, extol him, know him, and eternity itself will not be enough time to exhaust this quest and this relationship with God. This is the Christian faith and hope. In this story today that we heard Ashley read from Matthew chapter 14, it's sandwiched between a number of points about who Jesus is and what he has done and probably one of the most familiar and famous miracles, him feeding the 5,000. But it's ultimately concerned and ultimately teaches us, especially today's gospel section, what Jesus is all about. Here it is. In verse 28 of Matthew chapter 14, it says, They saw him walking on the water, and Peter says, Lord, if you tell me to come to you on the water, I will do so. Jesus says, Come, Peter. 
Then Peter gets down from out of the boat. He walks on the water and he came toward Jesus. Verse 30. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. Let's pray that we might understand this passage this morning. We thank you, Lord, for your word to us, your word in flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, revealing to us your glory and your power and your love and your word to us in this section of scripture that reminds us what you are ultimately here to do, to reconcile us to you, to God, to the salvation of our souls. I pray by the power of your spirit, we might understand this word. It might find our hearts receptive to see it, to take hold of it, to believe it, to know that you have come to save us. And I pray that you would be our teacher today through the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So you might say, now, Alan, your opening comments are a little off base. Surely you've been away too long. Maybe you unplugged so much that you are not listening or paying attention. We're in the midst of a pandemic. We're facing a political meltdown in this nation where people are hating each other over a political party, a leader, leaders. We're watching riots on our television. We are seeing people die. We see racial injustice. We see extremism and all sorts of aggressive danger. And you're telling me that Jesus doesn't care about those things. Not at all. That's not at all what I'm here to say to you. I'm actually going to tell you what he cares about the most. But first, I need to tell you what is behind all those things that I just mentioned. The source and the cause of them is ultimately our estrangement from God. And how do I know this? Well, let's look at Matthew chapter 14 to see a quick survey of what's happening in this whole chapter related to what I'm telling you this morning. And we'll jump over to John, as I mentioned earlier. So in John chapter 14, Uh, John the Baptist is beheaded, and to us that might not mean much, but to the folks in this day, John the Baptist was their cultural hero. He was this holy prophet, this really amazing man who told people to get right with God. He called them to repentance, to clean up their lives, so to speak. He spoke against the powers that be. He spoke against the evil of the day. He called out the leaders for what they were doing wrong. And the leader at this time, Herod's son, Antipas, had this awful traitor king had him killed, had him beheaded for a dancing daughter. So Jesus, in light of this political and sociological meltdown, what does he do? He leaves. I want you to grapple with that for just a second. He gets out of Dodge City, and all of a sudden, people follow him out. They follow him out to the wilderness, and he takes them out there, and he miraculously heals them. He heals their diseases and their sickness and their illnesses, and just as Moses did in the wilderness 
He feeds them miraculously and powerfully. We know uh, just sheer numerically, this is 10,000 of people, uh, men, women, and children sitting on on a hill by a lake, and he feeds them with the power of God. He feeds them more than they could want. As I like to say, sometimes when I overdo it at dinner, they probably ate so much they hated themselves. That's why we need to turn to John chapter 6, verse 14. Turn in your Bible, two books over, three books over, sorry, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, chapter 14. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing what they, that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Again, I'd like you to grapple with this thought. Political meltdown in Jerusalem, Jesus withdraws. Political overtones here on the mountainside after he's done these amazing miracles. What does he do? He withdraws. Why? Because our nature, internal to our core, is to look to someone or something to rescue our circumstances in this world. We're consumed with our circumstances being improved. That's why there's Powerball and lottery signs on the interstate. You drive by and you see a $100 million Powerball, and maybe you don't play the lottery, but you think, you know, a $100 million could go a long way to helping my circumstances. We're constantly consumed with this. We're looking for some person or something to rescue us. Trust me on this. The person who comes up with the vaccine for COVID is going to get a Nobel Peace Prize. He will be a world hero or she will be a world hero. So just like in Moses' day, the people are crying out for a king. They're crying out for someone who will rescue them. And they're thinking, here's this guy. He can heal us. He's fed us like Moses Surely he is this holy prophet. And before you think to yourselves for just a second how primitive and simple these people are, we are guilty of the same thing. Are we any better? Do we search for a king today? You know, our political conversations are loaded with messianic promises. We can do this for you. We can fix this for you. We can change your circumstances. And when Jesus catches on to their plans on this mountainside, he leaves again. Now, just for a second, put yourself on that shore with these people. Put yourself in their place. You're hungry. You're in need. You're afraid. And you're probably helpless in the grand sweep of life. And this guy leaves. He's just healed you. He has fed you. And he leaves. And you're left with two ways of thinking. Maybe he doesn't really care, which if you read the rest of the Gospels, you know this is not the case at all. On the other hand, you know it probably actually means that my understanding of the problems of this day of my life isn't his understanding. Our assessment of the problems are always usually material. The problems are money, sex, and power, 
or it's sex, power, and money, or it's power, sex, and money, and not in any particular order. So then to recap our problem, it's about the powerful, the sexy, and the wealthy. But you have to ask yourself, is that really the problem here? Is this really the problem that we face? Or is there something greater in us that's a bigger problem? Verse 22 of Matthew chapter 14, it says, Immediately, Jesus, after he learns about the plan of the people, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. One of the great verses. And later that night, he was there alone. And the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. So these guys are about to travel across the lake. It's not that far. And they get into this boat and the waves and a storm and a wind comes up. And commentators and scholars guesstimate that they had been rowing on this lake for about nine hours. So in the third hour of the watch, which is 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., these disciples who had been rowing all night were exhausted. I would have already been dead and had a heart attack. Verse 25, shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on a lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they cried, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus says to them, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. A few years ago, Angela Kay and I got the honor to go to Israel, and we visited the Sea of Galilee. We stayed there a few nights, and I think it was probably her favorite spot of the trip. We did several things. We swam in the water at night, and it was staggering for us. It was really a a pretty powerful experience to be sitting in a simple lake thinking, this is the place where Jesus was. And we rode on a boat so we could understand what it would be like if a storm came up and wind came up. It would feel very terrifying and dangerous. And we even visited a church which was built in honor of Jesus feeding the 5,000. So the memory of this experience allows me to, to grasp the probable setting of this scene and what's happening here. I could imagine that the same disciples who saw and witnessed Jesus do the miraculous were hoping and crying out for him, but they were also terrified of him. And here comes Jesus walking on water. Now, in the Greek tense, this phrase, walking on the water, we probably imagine he's, you know, sloshing around or he's, you know, doing a power walk on the lake with high winds. The word there is like a casual stroll. I want you to understand that in the midst of this storm and the terrifying circumstances of this disciple situation, Jesus doesn't seem to be very urgent to change their circumstances, nor mine. In other words, Jesus has the complete and total power of the forces of nature, and yet we are unable to control him. 
He doesn't exist to fulfill our ambitions or to change our circumstances alone. This is the whole point of the section. He will not be used for us for our purposes. He doesn't come to just solve our problems, even the problems of the perceived injustices of this world. And people will try to use him to solve the injustices of the world. Kings conquered in times past in the name of Jesus to solve the problems of the world. Political leaders on both sides use his name to get votes. But when we try to use him, he leaves. It's fascinating to think about this setting. So here comes Jesus walking calmly into their struggle and their storm. And the next scene is probably the most pertinent. Peter sees Jesus and he wants to walk on water as well. And at first, as you know, Peter starts off pretty good. He's walking on water. And isn't that like us in the, in the quest of faith? We all probably started out well, but after some time, Peter starts to sink. And the key part of this passage is this, simply, Peter took his eyes off Jesus. Peter illustrates the whole point of this section. He just wanted to use Jesus. He just wanted to walk on water. And that's why he got out of the boat. And that's precisely why he started to sink. He took his eyes off Jesus and he looked at his circumstances. And he walked by sight and not by faith. And friends, the same is true for us. If we want to use Jesus and fill in the blank for whatever thing you want Jesus to do for you, then you will sink in the storms of life, just like Peter. How many of us have thought this to ourselves, me included? You know, if I live this way, if I do this, if I act this way, then Jesus will do this for me. It's the ultimate quid pro quo. I've lived a good life and I cannot believe this is happening to me or my family or my situation. How many of us have asked this this year? It shouldn't happen to me. I'm a faithful Christian. I go to church. I give. I serve. I pray. Verse 30 says this, but when Peter saw the wind, the storms of his life, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. In the end, Peter had to cry out for Jesus to save him, not to help him walk. Lord, save me. Possibly, this is the shortest and the best creed or summary statement of faith anyone could ever say. Lord, save me. Three very powerful words. The first, Lord. It's an acknowledgement of his power and his position and his majesty. He's our Lord. Save, to rescue, to deliver, to help us in our time of need. And me, personal. Me alone. My predicament is personal. It's real. I'm in trouble. I need God's help. Verse 31, immediately, Jesus reached out his hands and he caught him. 
You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? You see, this is the truth of our faith. Fear sinks us. When Peter had faith, he walked on water. When he had fear, he sank. The same is true for me. Fear sinks me. Is there any fear that is gripping or controlling you today? You know, this spring, I had my um, apocalyptic moment. I was reading the news. I was watching the developments of things. I began to take to the logical conclusion, what happens if this all melts down? What happens if everything is unraveled? What would I lose? And it's a, it's a moment that's pretty sobering to sit there and come to those conclusions. And what stuck with me is this, death, illness, financial calamity, and even betrayal and disappointments are realities of life. So I asked, what is it I really fear losing? Now, apart from potentially losing air conditioning, I thought this, and I think this is God speaking to me. If I cannot lose Jesus, then I can truly lose everything else. If I cannot lose Jesus, then everything else is secondary. And this is what Jesus is teaching Peter. Jesus shows us something here. A little faith is better than no faith. He spoke of Peter's little faith, which means Peter was capable of even a greater sustained faith. His little faith, his very little, bitty, insignificant amount of faith helped him to cry, Lord, save me. At least he had that. The crux of this passage is that Jesus is so uncontrollable and so unstoppable, but he also has the power to save you and save me. But I have to drop my conditions for him. Do you notice Jesus and his miracles are never bragging sessions? He never does something and then goes, did y'all see that? He never boasts or brags about that. His miracles are for teaching. They are pastoral. He speaks calmly and gently. Some of his miracles are even unnoticeable by the masses. He rescues someone. He demonstrates the love of God. He meets someone in their darkest hour or their deepest need. He is tender and compassionate to the hurting. And yet here... In this miraculous moment, here's what Jesus says. He says, I am. Now, the English translation says, yet is, it is I. The NIV, yet it is I. They're trying the best that they can. But the actual Greek word is I am. It's the same word that God gave to Moses in the wilderness to say who he was. I am. And then he says, I am hearkening back to this great name for God. And then he reminds them, 
do not be afraid. Trust me. My presence in your life is enough. Just look at me. Friends, we can lose all these things and be looking at Jesus and feel as if we are sitting in the eye of a hurricane. Sometimes Jesus has this habit of calming storms, as he does in this case, and sometimes he has a habit of just calming us in the storm. And that's because what he promises to us is his presence. Jesus didn't say, hey guys, I'm here, don't be afraid. He says the same phrase Moses heard, I am, I always am. I have no beginning. I have no ending. Nothing made me. Nothing has created me. Everything exists from me. I am the source and the creator and the sustainer of everything. Everything that you know and that you see is from me. I hold all things in my hands. So do not be afraid. I am near. In the Old Testament, what's remarkable is when the people heard God's name, they always ran in terror. They ran in fear. The clouds uh, boomed. The mountains shook. The people ran in fear at knowing the majesty and the power of God. But in this case, when Jesus says, I am is here, he gets in their boat. This summer, I read and I studied a book that's a little different from my normal appetite for reading. And here's the summary of this book. The book, the author is making the case that most of us, most Christians, most followers of Jesus live a life of doing. Doing for God, doing for others, day after day, crunching it out, paying the bills, doing your job raising your children, finishing your studies, basically operating on this premise. If I do these things and do good, God will bless me. God will be with me. Even still, maybe God might owe me because I'm trying the best that I can. But the book I studied argues this. Christians living in this manner eventually become jaded. They give up and they start sinking They become disillusioned. Surveys are saying now more and more people have stopped attending church because it's online. You see, if we worship Christ when it is beneficial to us, when it meets our circumstances and our needs, then we're setting those same kind of conditions. So then we fail to experience the joy and the simple, beautiful presence of God. But some of us can understand this truth. Jesus is our life. He is the I am. And those that do, as we are able, become purposefully captivated by his beauty and his love. Have you ever had these seasons or moments in your faith where you just seem that you cannot get enough of Jesus, just being with him. No conditions, no expectations, no demands of him, just being in his presence.
Robert Murray McShane, who was a famous South African pastor, wrote this in his biography, and folks found it after his death. And it says this, one entry on a certain Sunday morning, Sabbath, rose early to seek God and found him whom my soul loveth. Who would not rise early to meet such company? Sinking Peter would later write, though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That phrase is echoing in my mind. You are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. I dare ask, are you seeing people walking around filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy these days? I don't much. I see lots of people angry. I'm I'm in the same boat, so no shame, no guilt here. I see people stressed. I see people afraid. I see people hoping that Jesus will come and fix things and just change their circumstances and make everything right. Is that you? Is that the time that we live in? Then here are three great words for us to finish with this morning. Lord, save me. And if you are able to articulate this expression, if you drop your conditions and your expectations for Jesus to fix your circumstances, you will get the opportunity to experience something greater than changed circumstances. You will get his presence. And friends, it will be worth everything that you could want in this life. Lord, save me. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.